0: You wouldn't believe how many times fundamental things like we don't know who owns the company blow up a deal. But if you completely miss the housekeeping matters, you so often swore up a real problem. The Startup Sensations podcast. First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. From
1: both sides of the pond... With Belent Osman and Shelley Bays. And welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast with me, Belent Osman, uh, this time from just outside a place called Calcum. On the southwest Aegean coast of Turkey.
2: And me, Shelly Bays, who's very envious of your weather today, Belen, since I'm on the northern California coast and it's cool and foggy.
1: How unfortunate for you, Shelley. And also, I think we'll enjoy this particular episode as well, because it's one of my favorite subjects, exiting. It's all about selling your company at the end of your entrepreneurial journey hopefully for a lot of money and hopefully to make a lot of people happy but of course it's one of those topics that uh, people don't really think about too much in those early uh, stages uh, of course you aspire to one day sell your business but of course at the beginning it's just a lot of hard work and it just seems so far away
2: this is going to be very interesting because you know this is the dream this is the entrepreneurial dream and yet as you point out the pragmatic aspects of getting to the realization, if you will, it's going to be very interesting. And um, I think we will want to understand what are some of those steps people need to be considering as they're founding their company and running their company and scaling their company.
1: And today's guest, I'm delighted to say, is Rich Gould. And Rich is the partner in a law firm called Wilson Sonsini, who, of course, you will know, uh, Shelley. It's a huge international firm, headquartered in Silicon Valley, as you know, but of course, have got offices all around the world. And Rich is a partner in the London office, and he's had a, a lot of experiences in terms of mergers and acquisitions, and also international fundraising. And he's helped founders move from the UK to the US and setting up US operations, and also vice versa, as well as obviously helping founders to finally reach that exit. And I'm delighted to welcome Rich Gould, who now joins us from London. Rich, hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? We're both very well indeed, and we're delighted to have you on the show. Rich, you're the partner in the London office of Wilson Sonsini, can you just say, explain to us your role within the firm and what exactly does the firm do? Because I know that there's an international flavor here across both sides of the pond.
0: Wilson Sonsini is a Silicon Valley headquartered law firm, and we act as strategic counsel to tech entrepreneurs. Many of the world's most high profile tech entrepreneurs trust us to take them from the garage stage all the way through IPO to exit. I'm, I'm here in London, I'm one of the partners. There are now 50 of us here in. London, and we basically spend all of our time as an office helping European entrepreneurs
1: launch in the US, raise money from the US, or exit an IPO. And your specific specialism is around m I believe. Is that right? International mergers and acquisitions? That's right.
0: I'm a corporate partner. I tend to work with founders all the way, so I help them raise money, and then whether they're thinking about IPOing or exiting, I'll help them all the way through every stage of their life cycle.
1: So I mean uh, exit is, is a subject that most founders don't really think about at the beginning or at least don't seriously think about it. They of course aspire one day to grow the company uh, for it to be worth multi-millions and, and of course go out in a blaze of glory. To, to what extent do you think founders in early stage companies should be planning ahead for an exit and how early can, can that planning process start?
0: I think it's critical that founders think about it from the earliest stages, really. In fact, you, you often do see founders, even in their very early stages of fundraising decks, thinking about not just the total addressable market, but where within the whole universe of potential buyers, should they be thinking about shifting their business from a revenue perspective to get them closer to the ultimate buyers? So I think there's been a bit of a transition over the last certainly five to 10 years in Europe, where founders are beginning to think about it at a much earlier stage, which I think is probably a, a feature of Silicon Valley founders. You know, Silicon Valley founders are very intentional both about how they build their companies, but also how they think about and engage with potential buyers as well. And maybe some of that is because we've seen not just the ecosystem mature, you've seen investors who've done multiple deals, then working with founders to help them think about that topic in a more mature fashion.
1: And what would you say are the significant differences between the way in which UK founders might might view this versus US founders? Is there much of a difference or are there more similarities and differences? Well, I think one of the, the key differences
0: is around scale, right? You know, in, in the Valley, a hundred million exit would be viewed there's a failure in many cases whereas in the uk europe generally that could be viewed as a success i think there's a lot to be said for the culture in the valley and the way in which the advisor network the and i don't mean investor bankers and lawyers for this purpose I, I actually mean the the executives who sit and advise entrepreneurs they make them feel that they should go bigger bolder they need to be more successful and, and that is that's beginning to shift in Europe, but I think for the European tech ecosystem to really be successful, we need more of that Silicon Valley style of approach. Thinking big, growing big companies, not seeing 100 million exit as being an endpoint of success, but actually thinking about building bigger, braver, bolder visions. Yeah.
2: So one of the things that we've heard from people, and and I think both Belent and I have experienced in our own lives, is there's an attitude in the U.S. that failure is okay. It's kind of a badge of courage. You can keep trying and fail, and keep trying and keep trying. And some other places in the world, I mean, Europe and probably the UK still, failure is not viewed as a positive. And so when you try to encourage people to have more of the Silicon Valley attitude and really think big. How do you talk to an entrepreneur who really comes from a very, very different background and give them that sense of confidence?
0: Well, I think there is a generational shift going on. So even when I left university, it wasn't a common feature for people coming out of university to become entrepreneurs. Some did, but some didn't. And, you know, in the US, there's been this entrepreneurial landscape for a a huge amount of time now, relative to in Europe, but in Europe it's been a newer thing. And as you say, the business ecosystems generally are more conservative, and they've yeah, you know, we've had businesses that have grown that have grown more slowly and grown more steadily. And there's been more of a focus on private equity style push for profit as opposed to grow quickly, dominate markets, and then you've got the winner takes all thing. But we're beginning to see generations of entrepreneurs that are thinking more like the way in which entrepreneurs in the U.S. think about it. The investors we're seeing are more prepared to accept losses. They're more prepared to shoot for a few big successes, you know, U.S. style venture capital. Many more early stage investors are aiming to have one or two kind of fund returners rather than having everybody having mediocre returns. I think those things go together. European investors looking for those outsized returns and particularly some of the younger entrepreneurs taking on entrepreneurship at an earlier stage in their career where they have less things to worry about, frankly, (laughs) Uh, and they've got more peers out there who are doing these things. And it's becoming a very common thing to go and do. You know, people finishing university, they don't want to become bankers or lawyers. I mean, some of them do, but... Becoming a founder is a cool thing to do, right? Yeah. And people don't want to become a founder and build a small company, typically. They want to do it in a big way. So I, I think there's a series of foundations that have been changing. Clearly, there's a bit of tempering that is required there because you can have over-ambitious, over-cocky <laughs> entrepreneurs who want to change the world. It's finding you know, that balance between having... The adults in the room who can temper a bit of that, but actually harnessing some of that bravery as well to to, to see a vision and then go for it
2: so so what have you seen um, because Wilson Cincini is a is a fabulously interesting firm and has done many, many things. Uh, tell us some of the war stories and or fun stories uh, about cases that you can share or situations that we can learn from
0: I think there is so much i mean i 've spent the last fifteen years of my career really thinking about and immersing myself in the world of U.S. venture capital backed companies. At the beginning of that period, so 15 years ago, I was spending all of my time in the U.S., working with U.S. VC backed companies as they were coming over to Europe. And I was really learning because there wasn't a big VC backed ecosystem over here. And one of the reasons why I joined Wilson's and seeing is because it has all of this heritage. And now we're seeing in Europe these VC-backed companies growing, and they do grow differently. As I said earlier, the accised returns are truly excised, and equally the number of failures is significantly higher than what we've seen in Europe. I moved over to the Valley for several months last year. And just one of the companies that we've taken from such early stages all the way through to the end was um Twitter.
2: Haven't heard of that company before, <laughs> Rich.
0: <laughs> well, we were represented that company all the way, all the way through its life cycle and we are now beginning to see, albeit a much, much earlier stage in Europe, similar trajectories. Now I'm not saying that we're about to have a, and Twitter become a forty four billion market cap company on the London Stock Exchange, but I guess The point there is the firm, Wilson Sonsini, has thousands of data points around how these companies grow through up rounds, down rounds, how do they engage with potential buyers, how do they engage with potential investors that will bring all sorts of different, sometimes crazy, sometimes sensible terms to it. And what we're doing is bringing all of that data, all of that heritage back to the European entrepreneurs to help them make the right decisions as they grow these increasingly valuable
1: companies here in Europe we all speak to our guests uh, with regard to the advice that, that people can offer with uh, firms coming from the US to the UK uh, and also vice versa what can you offer in terms of uh, typical mistakes that, that founders make and how best to get around them for companies that wish to go from the UK to the US first and can you also cover the reverse as well. We did a piece of work with Notion ocean capital called Exiteering. And if you
0: were to look at the vast majority of successfully exited enterprise software companies in Europe, they almost always have some form of both US sales story, as in, you know, they've built customer success in that market, and then that has led on to the ultimate sale. It is... A great way to burn a lot of money, if you're seeing here in Europe, you know hiring people is very different. Hiring, firing at any level of employee in an organization is different. It can be very expensive, particularly to get the right caliber of sales staff. And that's, that's what most European tech companies do, right? They, they launch in the US with a, a view to creating sales success. So I think the ones that have been really successful in both hiring people and Bringing their culture from Europe across, typically make very serious and senior commitments to that market. But I think a common feature of some of the very successful ones has been there's been very heavy involvement from at least one of the founders. You know, maybe even a CEO actually moves. Some of the companies that have built up the highest values in Europe have actually moved their founder and their CEO from the UK to the US. Some of those people end up being. You know, Strictly involved in sales roles and building the team. But I think the ones that get it right do manage to find a transatlantic culture that sort of works both in the European HQ and, and in the US. But you can make assumptions kind of going the other way. As I said, 15 years ago, really, my specialization was helping US companies come to Europe. I think one of the common mistakes when companies come across to Europe is they treat it as Europe. And it's obviously very different. I mean, the language makes that most obvious. (laughs) I think there's a trap there for when companies go to the US that there's a lot of common language and you can assume it's it's the same, Where selling in Chicago is very different to selling in Louisiana, but it's still significantly more similar than selling in Belgium compared to selling in Denmark, compared to selling in Spain and, and the UK. Yeah. I think that's a big reason why so many companies, even post Brexit, come out of the US and use the UK as a launch pad. So the regulatory situations become a bit more complex post Brexit. Yes. But there is still a high degree of cultural uniformity between the US and the UK, not beyond the common language. Clearly, as a big market that's become increasingly digital native here. But I think having a UK beachhead is super helpful. And we clearly have lots of other similar places like Ireland, but I think the UK has a natural market plus an ability to then build a team and then launch into Europe and just trying to conquer Europe all in one go is hard.
2: I, I've seen and I've talked to people who have said a lot of the companies emerging in Europe are copycats, but it didn't exist yet in Europe. So it was something, an idea, a thought, a process that was developed in the US. And so then somebody started it in Europe and it could grow really fast and exit really quickly. I got to believe that's changing, especially uh, as we talk about companies wanting to be located much more broadly globally. What's what's your, your view on that? I, I
0: definitely think that there was a time when that was more true than it is now. Because finding a great idea any, anywhere in the world and then applying that idea to either your local market or markets that that idea is not in, It's clearly been a, a great model. And there are you know VCs that just invest on that thesis. I'd say that is a minority. And, and Europe's become a very diverse place. You, know, you, can, you can look at individual ecosystems and say, this one's really strong for fintech or this one's really strong for digital media. And they're... A lot of it goes to the natural strengths of the underlying markets. You know, London's very has always been an international financial services hub, and therefore customers sit sit in the market, but also there's a ton of people sitting in big financial institutions that get a bit bored. But the, but there is huge amounts of innovation sitting around those areas now as well. What, what we do, I guess we sit here in Europe helping these entrepreneurs think about how to raise money. To go into big markets. Because one of the problems is if you're doing something really innovative in Estonia, for example, which is a hub of a huge amounts of innovation, you've got a much, much smaller market sitting on your doorstep. You might have a brilliant idea. And I think that's the thing in the US. You often have a perfect combination of the true innovation plus a very large market just sitting on the doorstep. I mean, that's ultimately why we sit on this transatlantic bridge, where we're helping these very innovative companies raise money, and it's a huge amount of money. You know the, the number of 50 to 100 million rounds that we work on where and it's not just US money that comes into these um, ideas, but then they're using that to then go into the US often,
1: first of all. But I don't think you'd get those sorts of rounds
0: if it was just for Copycat.
1: I know the issue of fundraising is always a big, big topic, and it's also a source of great stress for most founders because they find it quite a challenging time, to be honest. And it's also a diversion from the day to day job that they should be focused on. What advice would you give, let's say, British founders? who are embarking or about to embark upon a, f- a major fundraising round, what advice would you give them on how best to execute that in the most efficient way? The advice now is probably a bit different
0: than it was six months ago. We, we had a huge spike of activity as we came out of lockdown. Valuations in Europe exploded, the number of rounds exploded, and then as inflation started to go through the roof and interest rates started ratcheting up, we had almost six months tail end of last year and into this year, where the investors in Europe were, uh, unless you're looking at truly early stage companies, they were looking at supporting their existing portfolio companies. They were looking at making sure that companies were right sized, extending runway and so on. But I think over the last two to three months, we've seen a real sea change in the market. It continues to be a bit of a game to halves. you know, companies that are in hot areas like AI. I guess those companies have been raising money throughout, but those companies that are just great companies that were struggling earlier in the year, that are now going back out to market, are able to get international interest, particularly from the US. There is a huge amount of interest um, from US funds now looking at both early stage and growth stage companies. So founders need to be super thoughtful about their network, because if they want to attract Money to internationalize. I think some of that international funding, particularly out of the US. I think that market's fully open again now. There's a series of fundamentals that will always sit underneath any business plan and any fundraising process plan. You yeah, know, the founders have got to have a deck that is believable. They've got to have KPIs that the investors understand, and that can be quite different. You know, how a, a US SaaS. In, investor thinks about life at different stages can be different from Europe. So having a view on what's your ultimate preferred type of investor and location of investor, and then building your deck and your KPIs around how they're likely to think about life, I think is important. But being fully prepared that when you've got sufficient interest, you've got a signed term sheet that you can move really rapidly. You know, you've thought about your business, you've thought about the value, and you've thought about potential liabilities, treating a fundraising as though, in a way, you're selling your company and showing a preparedness. Preparation is, is absolutely critical. And I'd say many European companies don't put as much energy into that preparation as they should. Because just like any process, any transaction, you want there to be a degree of competitive tension You want there to be speed. You don't want people to have reasons to either bid the price down or just say no. It's all a distraction on management at the end of the day. So by the time you've got the signed term sheet, you want to have a high degree of confidence that the investor can open the car's bonnet. They can look, look under the hood and find a beautiful, shiny engine. They're not finding oil leaking everywhere on the floor. Yeah. The best deals often come together super fast and it sort of all looks very easy. And then the founders out in the market want to know how how do you go from a signed turn sheet through to money in the door in three weeks? Well, it's, it's down to prep, ultimately.
2: We're talking about big exits, big companies. At what stage does a company really need to seriously start putting in motion some sort of process to get to exit. Where do you see the sweet spot?
0: We talk to founders all the time about this. And I think once you've actually figured out what the product needs to look like and you've determined that you've got traction, if you put more money into the tank, then the tank can just go faster. Then at that point, you really need to be, I think, thoughtful about the whole customer and buyer journey. And I think the best board's, regularly take a step away from running the business to think about this whole intentional route to exit. Who are the potential buyers in order to be of interest to them? What's our sales traction need to look like? What's our brand in a certain market need to look like? Because some of those things take years to build. And if you think that ultimately, you know, your ideal acquirer is a Bay Area tech company, then you need to start thinking about, well, should we be building a sales team in the Bay Area? Should we be moving a founder over there? Should we be building our profile as much as anything to start building relationships? And I think that's done with relationships directly and via advisors. So the best founders begin conversations with investment bankers early. They have relationships with lawyers. And this is, I guess, maybe a difference in... The US way of thinking about how you use a lawyer. And in Europe, you know, traditionally lawyers just get instructed in Europe. You know, you've got a deal, strategically you know what you need to do. You go to a lawyer to pay for the transaction. The lawyers sit in the boardroom. When we get appointed, we go to the board meetings from the early stage all the way through. And you are understanding the business strategy. At the end of the day, the best lawyers will have huge networks. They're doing deals all the time. They see what the best companies do. And in the US, it's just standard practice that you leverage that. That's a lot of what we're doing in Europe, taking that sort of strategic counsel role and
1: bringing that to the European founders at a much earlier stage than
0: people would anticipate.
1: And when you find a buyer and there's early interest, what are the, the key principal steps of moving from that early interest where there's serious interest through to final exit? because it can take quite a while, can't it?
0: It can, and particularly where you've got founders that are not used to selling companies. If you're a first-time founder, why, why would you? There's two parts to that. There's the process, and then there's a framework for how founders should think about the exit. We try to use a framework called the three Ps, and we break it down into the personal, the practical, and the politic. So on the personal, we encourage founders to really understand the motivations of the stakeholders that sit around them. What do shareholders want? What does the board want? What do executive management want? Because all of those motivations can pull apart. Sometimes they come together. Sometimes two of those groups come together and one of them doesn't. But it's a pretty existential event for a company. You know, At some point, this group of stakeholders has to think that selling the company now As opposed to going for tomorrow's valuation you know it's 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 better for everybody so understanding those motivations and then really thinking through what are the behaviors that are going to sit around this i think the best founders they understand their waterfall you know if i sell for this much how does the value break who gets what sounds like a really simple question in the world of vc-backed companies that can be extremely difficult to understand But the best founders will understand how their documents sit, how they work with their advisors to make all of those um, motivations line up because, do I need to work with my chairman to help with his motivations? Do I work with my banks, my lawyers? But they're constantly thinking about this. And they're also then putting together a deal team, putting together a team that allows the management of the business to run the business and having a, a... Ideally, somebody who's got experience of M&A is going to have to involve the founders' time, but having a really defined group to work through that. So all of those personal things are one element of it. The practical, as I said earlier, I think the financing is the same as M&A in a way. You've got value and you've got liabilities. So understanding how some of these strategic or private equity buyers will think about what companies value and liabilities and again, when they open the bonnet, they're going to like what they see, and then you've got competitive tension. And if you're hoping to get to a term sheet and then close a deal within four to six weeks, well, your prep phase is probably two to three months before that. Thinking through how do I prepare this company? How do I prepare its finances? Its legal matters? Its tax matters? So one of these processes can be six months, because or longer because you need to have done the prep to work, how do evidence the value, how do the numbers underpin that, how do the legal, the tax, et cetera, and the liability is the same. And the last one is then the politic. We spend a lot of time working with founders to really talk to them about how they engage with the buyers and coaching them around early conversations, often the early conversations that you have with buyers, set the tone and tenor for the whole deal And then working with them to make sure that you work on maximum competitive tension, you use your leverage at the right time, you use the stakeholders, all the personal stuff I talked about earlier. Sometimes some of the motivations can be used to your advantage. But it's important that founders have the time to really understand that framework and get into the weeds of it. The worst process are the ones where you've got executive management teams that sort of bottle along on the tops of the waves which might sound a bit surprising. But and a of founder who hasn't done that needs somebody who can work alongside them. You have the value of an experienced chair. It is huge.
2: What can go wrong, Rich? Give us a war story.
0: In my world, in the world of law, you wouldn't believe how many times some of the quite boring administrative matters just blow up a deal. Fundamental things like we don't know who owns the company, we don't know who owns the intellectual property. I was about to set on one company and we realized that they really had no idea who owned the company. They'd, they'd sort of <laughs> been managing the shareholder base on a spreadsheet without really any touch point back to basic corporate law. And we had to figure that out and we sold the company a year later. But I think that goes back to a topic we touched on earlier. You know, this. Maybe some of the strategic, I'm going to sell this company for this much to that buyer. Those things develop. But the best companies have the foundations just on an ongoing basis. The, the housekeeping admin, uh, they, they have those things lined up earlier, whether they use professional advisors or bringing in-house expertise. And you see that in the US. You know, The number of companies that will quite early in their life cycle get a reasonably senior general counsel, and CFO, you know some combination of those, or maybe a COO, that will have at least a significant portion of their life making sure that the house is kept tidy and transaction ready at all times. I'd say that happens much less. You know, the the, the portion of money tends to go into sales resources in Europe. For, you know, I, I understand that, but if you completely miss the housekeeping matters, you so often store up a real problem. Yeah. The three questions that people come to us with are I'm thinking about launching in the US, what do I do next? I'm thinking about raising money from the US, what do I do next? I'm thinking about exiting in the US, typically, what do I do next? Sometimes it's IPOing, but that's less of a question right now. So at any one of those points, they should come and talk to us because that's all we do. And sometimes that's really early. You know, we can be speaking to a seed stage European company that's thinking about, well, do I open up a subsidiary? How do I start selling? And that could be years away from a material transaction. But that's for us just business as usual. And we're delighted to help any company that's then thinking about that U.S. life cycle. And what's the best way for people to contact you, Rich? They can drop me an email. Um, my email is on the, the website, rgold.wsgr.com.
2: So one last question. What did you enjoy most about your stint in Silicon Valley? It, it was a slightly
0: interesting time because when I was there last summer, San Francisco was still in lockdown. I've been to Silicon Valley maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 times. It was a very different place, really. I don't think I've ever spent as long a period there, and, and it really struck me just what a unique place it is to be able to have that financial and that technology um, ecosystem on your doorstep with the mountains, with the bay, with the surf. You can sort of see that on a page and tick the boxes, but it's, I don't think it's until you've actually experienced living that you realize what a unique combination of factors all of that is, and it, it, I know a lot is said about the brain drain and people going off to you know all over the US and the world, but having spent several months there, I just realised that it is a truly unique
2: very special place yeah it is we we also throw in a few earthquakes just to keep people on their toes through <laughs> that well great well rich uh, on that earth-shattering
1: news uh we we shall uh, wrap up the conversation uh you've been an excellent guest we thank you very much for your time and also for your insights into the world of MA and fundraising so rich we thank you very much indeed for your time today
2: thank you both thank you
1: Well, Shelley, I really enjoyed meeting Rich, actually, and uh, I mean, he imparted so much really important information, especially as one thinks about an exit and beginning to plan for an exit and some of the things that you've really got to be doing early on to ensure that the path to an exit is a smooth and effective one. There's a lot to unpack here, isn't there?
2: Well, like you said, um, here's, a, here's a very experienced lawyer with a very prestigious law firm that's seen a lot of very interesting and very special companies exit Twitter, for example, which we won't uh, belabor that one. But that's pretty impressive. He did make sort of an interesting observation about how you think about exit. He summarized it into the three Ps, personal, practical, and politic. And he briefly, he said, personal is really the importance of understanding the motivation and what's driving all the various stakeholders that you really need to understand because they may differ. The practical is the boring housekeeping. We've heard this theme before, but it's so important. You need to know the valuation and be able to substantiate that. You need to understand your liabilities, prepare your finances, all that kind of boring stuff that is so important Mm -hmm. in preparation for exit. And then the politic, you know, how do you... Position the company. How do you engage with potential buyers? How do you have those conversations, and and what stance do you take? So you listen to that, and you think, well, we know that all. But here was somebody who's been through it many, many times saying, "Yeah, these are the important things."
1: Well, I think here, the comments he made about the board and the board composition, I think, were really important as well. As we know, having a proper board, a supportive board, a diverse board, that can. Uh, lend advice, provide governance, uh, but also use contacts and their networks to really further the uh, the business is really important. but I think what Rich was saying that in addition to that, especially as the company grows so let's say series a series b and and, and beyond to have somebody of his caliber, some uh, legal representation that understands the principles and the pathway of getting to a, an effective exit that is really important as well. And and maybe having a lawyer like Rich on your board isn't the first thing you think about, but I think having that sort of skill set, especially in slightly more mature companies, is probably a very wise thing to do and uh, will no doubt help the journey to a
2: successful exit. And, you know, having somebody like Rich who has obviously the legal background, the experiential background, but also the geographical background to understand diversity of cultures. When an American looks at expanding into Europe and thinks, this is like expanding into several states. Well, no, it isn't because every European country is very different culturally. So I think back to your point about having some experienced advisors that can help through all of these kinds of uh, issues is, is important.
1: Thanks for listening
0: to Startup Sensations. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Follow us on the Startup Sensations Podcast LinkedIn page and watch video highlights on our YouTube channel. Get in touch with us. Email hello at startupsensations.com. The Startup Sensations Podcast.